Morning, saints. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. And we thank you for the text that's before us this morning that grants us the occasion to think about the blood applied to us, the blood that has saved us, the blood that has moved us from darkness into light, the blood that has taken from us from a place in which we, we would have been doomed in your presence to a place where we rejoice in your presence. And not only that, where we have been tasked with speaking the name of Christ to those who don't know you, that they might go from being doomed in your presence to rejoicing in your presence. So, Father, as we read your scriptures this morning and consider them together, we pray that the the way that we have rejoiced as we've sung this morning, that we would rejoice in your word, that we would rejoice in its truth, and that we would rejoice at the prospect of applying these things as we leave this place. That the truth would have its way with us. That we would be a people who live the things that we say we believe. We need your help in all of this. And so we ask for it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 9. Leviticus chapter 9. As you're finding your place there, if you would please stand with me and we'll read this entire chapter. Leviticus chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. You may remember as we left chapter 8, Moses had done all that was necessary in accordance with the command of the Lord to ordain the priests. And so they have, been, they have been in the entrance of the tent of meeting for now seven days with the blood of ordination upon them. And now we begin in Leviticus 9, beginning in verse 1. And on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord, and say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering and Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him piece by piece. And the head he burned, he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burnt it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offerings and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And, Maron, and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. You may be seated. There are, there are multiple occasions in the Scriptures where people encounter the glory of God. One very famous occasion comes in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah 6, the prophet has a vision of the Lord in the temple. He sees the, the train of the Lord filling the, t- the temple. The whole earth is filled with His glory. That's Isaiah 6.3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The seraphim are saying this to one another. The whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah has an informative response to this whole scene. Isaiah responds saying, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Upon seeing the glory of the Lord, Isaiah says that he is undone. 
he is overcome with an awareness of his sin. And that, that whole scene just reminds us that the sin of man not only separates him from God, but it dooms him. It dooms him. That, that, that moral difference between man and God dooms him to punishment. And so Isaiah, aware of, aware of this, says, I, I am undone. That's, what, that's what's underneath that word lost. I'm lost. I'm undone. And yet, what do we see at the end of Leviticus 9 that we've, just, that we've just read? The people, they too see the glory of the Lord. And how do they respond? Well, the text here says that they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, our ESV says shouted. I'll, I'll just tell you that this word, this Hebrew word means to shout for joy. It's a very different picture than what we see in Isaiah chapter 6. And I would suggest to you that both of those responses are absolutely appropriate. To cry out, woe is me, I am undone, is absolutely appropriate upon encountering the glory of God and to rejoice upon seeing the glory of God, absolutely appropriate. Now, what determines which of those is which? One, one is appropriate if you are not reconciled to God. The other is appropriate if you are reconciled to God. And what we find in Leviticus chapter 9 is that the ministry of the priest or the priesthood is, is, a, is crucial to bringing people from one side of that equation to the other. God has, has, has given us a prescribed means for seeing that people go from being doomed in the presence of God to rejoicing in the presence of God. All of these things that we see in Leviticus chapter 9, they are just pictures of greater realities in the work and person of Christ and in the identity of His church. Now remember that Leviticus focuses our attention on this central reality of human existence, which is that we were created for fellowship with God. And Leviticus also recognizes and answers the central question of human history, which is, how can I, a sinner, enter God's presence? How can I have fellowship with God? And big picture, what Leviticus chapter 9 represents in the overall narrative of Leviticus is that not only has God prescribed a means by which sinful man can enjoy fellowship with Him, but those means have been employed and they work. Good news, they work. God's glory appears to the people at the end of the chapter. And not unto their doom and dismay, but unto their rejoicing and their abiding in fellowship with Him. And so if we had access to the, the Sinai Times newspaper, on the morning after the events of Leviticus chapter 9, the headline would read something like the first point in your notes. Good news! Man has fellowship with God through his prescribed means. Good news! Man has fellowship with God through his prescribed means. Hey everybody, it works! Everything that, everything that God has set up in the law of Moses for man to have fellowship with Him again, it works! 
And we see these components at work in Leviticus chapter 9. Three main components coming together. The first of which is a qualified priesthood. A qualified priesthood. In the context, we saw this last time, in the context, really, the last guy you'd expect to be qualified for this work would be Aaron, since he was the idolater-in-chief back in Exodus 32. That he is now the high priest of the people of Israel proves the significance and the efficacy of these prescribed means of approach to God. Now, whereas in chapter 8, Moses acted as priest, now in chapter 9, newly ordained to the priesthood, Aaron and his sons fill that role. And whereas in chapter 8, Moses was doing everything that Yahweh commanded, now in chapter 9, Aaron and his sons are doing everything that Yahweh commanded. So, we have actually a qualified priesthood which means that everything that was done in Leviticus chapter 8, it worked. It worked to qualify this, what we might say, scumbag Aaron who led the whole nation into idolatry in Exodus 32. All of those sacrifices that, that, were, that were sacrificed in, in Leviticus chapter 8 to qualify him and his sons for ministry worked. Because now he's doing he's doing the offering of the sacrifices. So we've got a qualified priesthood offering appropriate sacrifices. Offering appropriate sacrifices. That's a second component. And I say appropriate in in a couple of different senses. These sacrifices are appropriate in that they are offered for the appropriate people. And that involves two different categories of people. So first of all, Aaron offers sacrifices for himself. Okay, so verse 2, if you look at verse 2 again, Moses told Aaron, take for yourself. Now that, that is a masculine singular, yourself. So, so in other words, he's saying, you, Aaron, take for you, Aaron, a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the, the Lord. And so Aaron does that in verses 8 and following. Now, interesting is that the word calf here is the same Hebrew word for calf that is used in Exodus 32 when Aaron made a golden calf for the people to worship there. And this is the only place in Leviticus where we find that word. In fact, this is the only sacrifice of a calf recorded in the whole Pentateuch. Chapter 4 says that the typical sin offering for a priest is a bull, not a calf. In other words... Typically, when a, when a priest sins, he's going to bring a full-grown bull. But this time, it's specified that it's got to be a calf. And I suggest that this first animal that, that Aaron ever slaughters as high priest is intended to be a public act of repentance for his idolatry in Exodus 32. So this offering pictures atonement for his own sin. And then with his sin covered, he offers a burnt offering or what we've called an ascension offering for himself, picturing his own consecrated heart and life and will unto God. And you'll remember that that offering essentially says, my life belongs to you, Lord, and it belongs with you, Lord. And then he offers a sin offering and an ascension offering and peace offering on behalf of the people. So he offers appropriate sacrifices 
in that He offers them for the appropriate people, Himself and for the people. And He offers appropriate sacrifices in that He offers the right sacrifices or the necessary sacrifices, which we've already gotten into a little bit already. In both cases, for Himself and for the people, He first offers an offering of approach. We've, we've referred to the sin offering and the guilt offering as offerings of approach. You see, sin has to be covered in order for people to be forgiven. And upon using God's way of approach, upon offering a sin offering for Himself and the people, then He brings what we have categorized as offerings of abiding. And in those offerings of abiding, the text emphasizes the peace offering. That gets a lot of space here. The people's sin offering, ascension offering, they're abbreviated. He just gives the cliffs notes of those. But he, he, he fully describes the peace offering, which gets to the heart of the passage. We enjoy peace. We enjoy fellowship with you, Lord, because of your gracious provision. A way of approach has been opened so that the people can abide with God and they have partaken of that way. That's the big headline here. So there's a, there's a qualified priesthood offering appropriate sacrifices in worship to God. In worship to God. Moses tells Aaron, the beginning, gather the animals for your own offering and instruct the people to gather animals for their offerings. Verse 4 is, is key because he tells them what this is all about. For today the Lord will appear to you. And that you is a masculine plural. So the Lord is going to appear to the nation today when we offer these offerings. So Aaron brings his own offerings and offerings for the nation. Then what happens at the end? Again, look, look at verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Now one, one commentator about this blessing he, he says that this, this, this blessing was intended to activate the covenant promises. Now, you may be familiar with the, the, the typical priestly blessing. You may not know it as such, but you may recognize these words from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. If, if you're taking notes, you might write that down. Numbers 6, 24 through 26. You'll probably recognize these words. But these are words that Moses told the priests, hey, when you bless the people, this is what you say. And this might have been what, what, what Aaron said here. But this is the typical priestly blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. We don't, we don't know for sure if that's the blessing that Aaron gave here. But, but it would have fit very well as, as, as we've seen. Because the whole point of all of this, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, everything, was to make it possible once again for the face of the Lord to shine in peace upon the people. For them to enjoy His presence. And so having offered these emblems of worship, then Aaron and Moses, they entered the tent. And in that moment, in that moment, it actually became a tent of meeting. Remember that the glory of the Lord had filled that tent 
since Exodus 40. So it's not that, that God is just now showing up. Okay, he has, His glory has, has filled that tent since the end of Exodus. But now, through God's prescribed means, man enters the tent. And so it's a tent of meeting. And then they come out. Moses and Aaron come out. They bless the people again. And perhaps it's a similar blessing to number 6, 24 through 26. We don't know. All we know is that what Numbers 6.24-26 asks for is what happened. The glory of God appeared to the people. Now what exactly does that mean? The glory of God is His visible presence among His people. It's His visible presence among His people. And so we might still say, what does that mean? Well, Exodus 24.17 says this, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So at least in one place, the Pentateuch describes the appearance of the glory of the Lord as being like a devouring fire. That is not the same thing as saying that to see God is to see a devouring fire. It is simply to say that at times when God has manifested His presence among His people, He has done so in the form of what looks like a devouring fire. So it's possible that on this occasion in Leviticus chapter 9, what the people saw with their eyes was a devouring fire. It's possible. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And again, this shouting, is not a shout of terror, but it is a shout for joy. Now, what are we to make of these sequences of events here, particularly the appearance of the glory of the Lord? Now, I will tell you that this, this whole thing is, is very unusual in, in the Scriptures. This appearance of the glory of the Lord does not happen every time people bring offerings in the future. We might say this initial opening of the way of approach and this initial enjoyment of abiding with God is marked by this extraordinary revelation of the glory of God. So this is not the norm. It's not the norm for God to appear in a visible way to the people. And for that reason, we should not say that this is intended to be some kind of formula. That is, we, we should not walk out from here thinking, okay... This is how worship works. We bring our offerings. We bring our praise. We, we bring our prayers. And then the Lord shows up. So worship is not something that we do in order to get God to do what He does. Because remember again, that, that, that God has been among the people for a while in various ways in, in, in the Pentateuch. He's been leading them. As a, as a cloud pillar and, a, and as, as, as fire by night for a long time, His glory has filled the tabernacle since Exodus chapter 40. This, this worship in, in Leviticus chapter 9 didn't cause God to show up. He's, he's actually been pursuing this extraordinarily obstinate people for a long time. So none, none of this caused Him to be among them, to be with them. And their failure to worship appropriately is not going to cause him to go away. 
No, the, the appearance of the, glo- of the glory of God right here, we, we, we might say, is thematic. Okay? That is, it reminds us that this is what this is all about. Being near God is what human existence is about. The building of this tabernacle and the institution of the priesthood and the sacrificing of sacrifices, all of this and, and the reason that we breathe and the reason that we, we have all of our faculties is about enjoying the presence of God, being near Him. And all of these mechanisms that God has put in place, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, all this is how people go from being doomed in the presence of God to rejoicing in the presence of God. This this glory that the people have just seen, this glory is going to reside in the tabernacle all the time. As as the way of approach has, has been opened, we can abide with God and God with us, His countenance shining on us. And, and again, an emphasis in the passage is, is, is Aaron. He's a, he's a central figure here, having been used by God to employ these prescribed means whereby the people can enjoy His glory. Now, all of these things in Leviticus chapter 9, they're all historical events. They actually happened. And the New Testament authors would have us to look back at these things. And they tell us, look, everything that's happened in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, in Leviticus chapter 9, all of these things have happened for our benefit. We learn from them. And we learn from them in various ways. We learn from their mistakes. We learn from the things that they do right. Another way that we learn from them is how they prefigure ultimate truths fulfilled in Christ. Ultimate truths fulfilled in Christ. And here is a fantastic truth that is fulfilled in Christ. Christ has revealed the glory of the Father to us. Christ has revealed the glory of the Father to us. There are three, three ways in which the Lord Jesus has done this. Three ways. First of all, by His own priesthood. By His own priesthood. Of course, we're hearing this week after week now. Jesus is the great high priest according to the New Testament. And this is particularly emphasized in the book of Hebrews. He is the one who opens the way of approach to God for us. There's a key distinction between Jesus... As, as, as our great high priest and, and any other high priest that, that has ever functioned in the priestly system of, of, of the Levitical priesthood. Jesus never sinned. And therefore, He had no need to offer a sacrifice for His, for his own sin. He never offered a sacrifice for Himself. Jesus has no golden calf in His past like Aaron did. So if you read Hebrews chapter 7 for, through chapter 10, you'll get a great, great feel, not only for, for that aspect of the superiority of Jesus' high priesthood, but for all these other ways that Jesus' high priesthood is superior to that of Aaron. This is just one of them. Jesus never sinned. Jesus' priesthood was sinless, and so He uniquely served God, not in an earthly tabernacle, but in a heavenly one. And He brought us not to the door of an earthly tent, but to the very throne room of God. 
His, his sinlessness enabled Him to reveal the glory of the Father to us through His own sacrifice. That's the second way that Jesus, that Jesus reveals the glory to the Father to us. He does it through His own priesthood. He also does it through His own sacrifice. That is, He sacrifices Himself. Not animals, but His own, his, his own life. Because He was untainted by sin, He was the perfect substitute to atone for us. Animal blood cannot actually atone for sin. I talked about appropriate sacrifices earlier. Those, those sacrifices were appropriate in that they pictured what man actually needs, but they were insufficient. Christ offered Himself to die in our place on the cross. He bore the wrath of God for our sins so that we could be forgiven and enjoy a relationship with the Father. He was raised from the dead three days later so that Everyone who repents and trusts in Him, in Him alone, is reconciled to God, adopted into God's family, and will spend eternity with Him. So Christ, Christ reveals the glory of the Father to us by His own priesthood, through His own sacrifice, and thirdly, in His own person. He reveals the glory of the Father to us in His own person person. And there are two senses in which Jesus does that. Two senses in which He reveals the Father to us in His own person. First of all, the Son is the visible representation of the Father. We mentioned earlier that in these, these Old Testament times, when, when, when God reveals Himself to people, at times it's in this consuming fire. Well, Jesus is the visible representation of the Father. John 1.14 was read for us already this morning. I'll read it for you again. The Word became flesh. The Word, Christ, the incarnate eternal Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the Greek word for, it's, it's a verb built on the word for tabernacle. The, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And, and in all of that, you can hear language that's very similar to Leviticus 9. Remember in Levit Leviticus 9, Moses says to Aaron and everybody else, Look, today the glory of the Lord will appear to you. And John 1.14 says, Look, we have seen His glory. We have seen this One who has tabernacled among us. The glory as of the only Son from the Father. We've seen that. With all the, the appearances or theophanies of God in the Old Testament. With all of those, there was still this cognitive wall in people's minds. Wanting to know, we've seen this consuming fire, but what is God really like? He appears as this, this consuming, unapproachable fire, but what is He really like? And, and that desire to, to get at Him is reflected in Philip's question to Jesus in John 14. Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Philip is just saying, look, all we, all we want is to see God. Just show us and we'll be good. And you, you may know how Jesus responds in John 14, 9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
Hebrews 1.13 says this of the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. To, to look at Jesus Christ, and, and, and that is not, not just to, to see Him with the eyes, but to grasp who He is, to grasp His character, is to grasp the character of the Father. And so this kind, merciful, welcoming Christ that we see in the New Testament shows the Father to us in that He is the representation of the Father in the flesh. What a a kindness of the Father to send the Son to us, if only for that. I think about about the the feeding of the 5,000. Let's, just for a second, let's put the cross out of our mind. And let's think about this wonderful Jesus who in His sheer exhaustion sees people. So Jesus, in a sense, is about to go on vacation with His disciples. He's exhausted, they're exhausted, and yet people find them anyway. Hungry people, needy people. And what does Jesus do? Jesus welcomes them. He welcomes them and He gives them exactly what they need. He treats nobody like a burden. And He feeds them. And He tells His disciples, you, feed them. When we see that Jesus, that welcoming, kind, shepherdly Jesus, when we see Him, we are seeing the Father. Because Jesus says, look, anybody who's seen Me has seen the Father. The Son reveals the glory of the Father to us in that He is the visible representation of the Father. Another sense in which the Son reveals the Father's glory to us in His own person is that to have the Father, one must have the Son. To have the Father, one must have the Son. Okay, so, so in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And this is an implication of the fact that Jesus is the high priest offering the perfect sacrifice for sin, which is Himself. Okay, if we're separated from God, Jesus is the only high priest offering Himself as the only sacrifice. You can't get to God unless you go through Jesus Christ. You cannot have the Father unless you have the Son. And that is why John says in 1 John 2.23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Can't have the Father if you don't have the Son And you can't have the Son without also having the Father. You get Jesus, you get the Father. Because that's what Jesus is all about. This is why He came. You embrace Jesus, He's taking you straight to the Father. That's that's what He does. In John 3.36, Jesus said this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see that there are two components of Christ's work that are absolutely crucial to our being reconciled to the Father. First of all, Jesus has this this perfect record of righteousness. Unlike every one of us, unlike Adam, unlike Aaron, 
when it came to these moment-by-moment decisions, am I going to do my own thing or am I going to do what God has said is right? In every one of those moment-by-moment decisions, Jesus only ever said, what God has said is right, that I will do and joyfully. Yes, it is my food to the will of the one who sent me. He only ever did that. And in doing that, he earned this perfect record of righteousness. And that's what we need. We need that kind of record in order to be in the presence of God. Anything less and we will never be in his presence. We need that, which only he has. And secondly, we need his death on the cross. We need our sins paid for. The question is, how can His righteousness be counted as ours so that we're blessed for it? And how can our sins be counted as His so that He pays for it? Well, there has to be some kind of relationship between us and Jesus. That's obvious. And it has to be the closest of relationships. The New Testament calls that kind of a relationship a union. And that union comes about through repentance and faith. We, we repent, we turn from our sin, and we trust in Christ alone. And when that happens, when we turn from our sin, when we trust in Jesus only, the Bible says that we have been joined to Christ. It uses language like Christ in you. Christ is in you by faith. And it says things like you are in Christ such that All that is yours is His and vice versa. All of your sin becomes His and He pays for it. And all of His righteousness becomes yours and you're rewarded for it. It sounds too good to be true, but it is true. And that, that union with Christ, that is the only way to the glory of the Father. And so, Christ reveals the glory of the Father to us in His own person in that we must have Him. We must have a union with Him through repentance and faith in order to get to the glory of God. Now, the New Testament clearly is teaching Christ is the great high priest offering this this great and final sacrifice. He reveals the Father to us in His person. The New Testament, as we have seen multiple times in this series, also informs us, particularly in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-11, through 11, that we are a holy priesthood as well, offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And we, we, we talked a, a bit a couple of weeks ago about the nature of these spiritual sacrifices. One of those kinds of sacrifices being our pursuit of holiness. And Leviticus chapter 8 gave us the opportunity to to zoom in on those kinds of sacrifices. Leviticus chapter 9 now gives us the opportunity to focus in on a second kind of sacrifice, which is that we pursue the facilitation of worship. We pursue worship in our own lives. We pursue the worship in, in, in other people's lives. Or to say it another way, we lead others to reconciliation and worship through Christ. As New Testament priests, we lead others to reconciliation and worship through Christ. You know, the New, the New Testament doesn't have a section about how to build a business. Or how to be a better physician. It, it, it essentially speaks to one mission, which, which indicates that we all have the same mission, 
which we pursue in our various personal spheres. And that mission is essentially facilitating worship, approaching the Father ourselves through Christ and leading others to do the same. Seeing everyone, seeing everyone as either in danger of the presence of God or rejoicing in the presence of God. Everyone is in one of those two places. And even those who are rejoicing in the presence of God, they need to get closer to the presence of God. And so part of our, our ministry as New Testament priests is to help them get closer to the presence of God. This is the vocation of the New Testament saint. And the, the New Testament authors call that priesthood. And, and they get that from the book of Leviticus. I would ask you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is one of the places in the New Testament that, that seems to assume that this kind of work is baseline discipleship. Spreading the good news of Jesus Christ is baseline discipleship. Listen to how Paul commends the church at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. He writes to them, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Okay, now let's think through this. Paul is actually commending them for two things. They've sounded forth the word. And what he means by that is that they've proclaimed the gospel. They've opened their mouths and they've said things. And if you're taking notes, you might write down Acts chapter 17, verse 7. Acts 17, 7 indicates that part of the heat that they have come under, which Paul alludes to later in the letter, is because they were all doing this. They were all saying, Jesus is the king in a culture where that's not popular to say. Caesar is the king. But all of the, the church in Thessalonica, they were saying to people around them, Jesus is the King. Okay, so that's what Paul means when he says, not only has, has, has the Word sounded forth from you, the Word of the Lord sounded forth from you. So that's the one thing they were doing. They're sharing the Gospel. Alright? But secondly, they, they were living out their testimony. He says their faith has gone forth everywhere. And what he means by that is the testimony of their lives has spread. They are living godly lives. All right? And people are hearing about that. Now, I would suggest to you that we should consider how Paul has, has stated this and the significance of how he has stated this. We might expect him to say this in the reverse order. We might expect him to say, not only... Has your faith in God gone forth everywhere? Or, or not, on, not only has your testimony spread everywhere, the, the holiness of your lives spread everywhere, but you've also shared the Gospel. That's what we might expect Him to say. We would say, you've, you, you've not only lived privately and with your mouth closed like, like, you, like you believe these things, but you've done the extraordinary, unbelievable thing of opening your mouth and talking about Jesus 
in exclusive terms in an unfriendly culture. Paul flips it. And he says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your testimony, the godliness of your lives has gone forth everywhere. And I would suggest to you that that means that spreading the gospel was the norm. And the godliness of their lives was the next step. And I would suggest to you that if we read Acts, and in particular Acts 17 about this church, and backing up earlier in Acts to the very beginning, that would be confirmed for us. It was the norm of the church to talk about Jesus and that the reason that we find so much ethical instruction in the, in the New Testament is that these people who were talking so much about Jesus needed their lives to line up with the gospel that they were talking so much about. Where else do we find evidence that, 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 that it was the norm for people to be talking about Jesus? Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, the, the apostles, you, you might turn there with me, I'm about to read a a somewhat lengthy passage from there. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles had been arrested and beaten for proclaiming the gospel. In Acts chapter 5, they're told, look, you guys better knock this off. And their response in chapter 5 is, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, thank you, no, we'll continue this. But here's, here, here's what we read in Acts chapter 4 in response to their being beaten for proclaiming the gospel. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, when the apostles were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak Your Word with all boldness while You stretch out Your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through, through the name of Your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. And that last part is, is crucial. They were all, not just the apostles, but they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And not just the apostles continued to speak the Word, but they all continued to speak the Word. They all continued to speak the Word, which implies that not just the apostles were speaking the Word in the beginning. It's, it's not that they all started to speak the Word. They all continued to speak the Word. They all did it. Keep reading Acts. Keep reading the New Testament. See if you don't agree. The New Testament assumes this is what we're about. It assumes that we, we are about this work of the priesthood recognizing that there are only two kinds of people. Those who are in doom of the presence of, of, of the glory of God and those who rejoice in it. And we are tasked with seeing that these people 
come over here through the proclamation of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 and following, teaches that these gifts that we've been given as, as new worshipers in Christ, they've been given to us that, that we might see that other new worshipers in Christ become more mature worshipers in Christ. I would encourage you to read about those gifts. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 and following. Read about other passages that talk about our spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Romans chapter 12. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. We could think of these spiritual gifts as wedding gifts from our bridegroom to us as the bride. What are they for? Read them in the context. Read those passages. You will find that these spiritual gifts, they are virtually useless outside of the work to which we've been called as New Testament priests. That, that, that should tell us something about the life and priorities that our bridegroom has for us as his bride. Because our bridegroom, as he's marrying us, he gives us particular gifts, abilities, skills that imply a work that He has for us to do. And all of these gifts indicate, hey look, this is what you're to be about. Gathering and building up a body of worshipers to God. Now, we have been hearing these kinds of things for for a while now, right? And and not just in in this series, but it, it tends to come up in in every sermon series that we have, these ideas of, of being about the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, helping others to grow in Christ, these themes tend to come up over and over. Now, here's, here's a crucial question for us. As we are repeatedly called to this, are we being more given over to those priorities of life? Now perhaps just being asked that question may be, may be hard for us to, to answer that question. So let me, let me give you a... Th- this is an admittedly arbitrary metric, but it is a metric. Is it more normal for us, each individually, is it more normal for us to say the name Jesus in conversation with Christians, with non-Christians today than it was one year ago. That, that, that is just one metric. That might be one way of measuring. Is the preached word, is the read word, is the taught word, is the word that we're ministering to one another privately, is it having its effect in us? If we understand that, that everyone around us needs to grow in worship, and that mean, means e- either become a worshiper, that they're, they're dead in their trespasses and sins, and so they need to repent of their sin, be reconciled to God and become a worshiper, or they need to grow in worship. Jesus is the only way to the Father. And if, if we understand ourselves to be members of that priesthood, it would make sense that we should be saying His name, right? So... Do we say His name more than we did a year ago? There may be better metrics, but that, that's just one. We might also ask ourselves, is this whole thing, 
is it just out of step with where we are in our individual lives? This, this idea that we as individual believers, our, our whole mindset should be living to help others go from doom in the presence of God to rejoicing in the presence of God so that we are all just enjoying God. Is, is, is that idea a little extreme? Is it perhaps unreasonable? Is it, is it maybe even just... It, could, could it be considered irrelevant to our daily concerns? If it, if it does seem that way to us, we probably should carefully consider what that might mean. So, some of you have been in the church for many years, and you can probably remember a, remember a time when it, it was the norm in American pulpits to preach expositionally. If you remember a time like that, can you raise your hand? And what I mean by preaching expositionally is to preach expositionally is to, to, to open the Bible, to read a passage of Scripture, to explain it, and then to apply that to life. So let me ask that question again now. You remember that that, that was just the norm. This is what everybody did. It didn't matter what church you go to. And so some, some, some churches may do it better than others, but that's what you're going to get when you, when you go to a church. About three decades ago, maybe four decades ago, some pastors began to recognize these sermons that, that we're preaching, they, they aren't really connecting broadly with people. Not with the people in the pulpits, and certainly not with people in the culture. And, and it just seemed like the messages were out of step with where people were. And so some concluded, maybe our preaching is addressing the wrong questions. And so some began to craft sermons that, that addressed the questions that were on the minds of, of the people. And some of the questions that were on the mind of the culture. They, be, they, be, they began to preach messages that were, were billed as relevant, relevant messages. And very quickly, sermons became less, less and less textual and more and more topical. And that, that was actually by necessity because it, it wasn't just that messages weren't speaking to what mattered to the people. The Bible doesn't speak to what matters to the world. So to craft relevant messages, you just can't preach verse by verse. So that, that had to be that had to be set aside. Consequently, as preaching became more and more topical to address the concerns of, of the people and the concerns of the culture, the church began to look less and less like the church and more and more like the world. The gospel began to look less transformative and more therapeutic. And it took a while for anyone to consider Maybe it's not that those expositional messages were answering the wrong questions. Maybe the expositional messages were answering the right questions. And they were oriented toward the right priorities. Perhaps 
the problem was that the professing church had adopted and built their lives around the wrong questions and priorities, such that their lives had become biblically irrelevant, rather than the Word becoming practically irrelevant. Perhaps, perhaps it's wrong to think that the Christian life is about packing as much material success, circumstantial ease, relational harmony, physical health, and leisurely amusement as possible into our 80 or 90 years on this earth. Maybe that's what's wrong. Perhaps if one's life is oriented to the mission of the Bible, one will not only regard the Bible as perfectly relevant, but one will flourish in the work for which he was created and to which he was called. The central reality of human existence illuminated by Leviticus, which is that we were created for fellowship with God, is assumed by the New Testament authors. The central question of human history, which is how can I, a sinner, have fellowship with God? The New Testament authors assume that that is the great crisis of of humanity. And so given those assumptions, they they have one, and, and only one, overriding thing that they care about. And it comes out in their writing. And that one overriding concern is proclaiming the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who removes people from the wrath of God that they might do that for which they were created, which is enjoy fellowship with God. And if we don't share their assumptions... Certainly, the Bible is going to be boring to us. Certainly, we will find the Bible to be irrelevant. And we will do other things with our lives. But, but we will be the ones who have missed the point, not the Scriptures. We will have chosen to be irrelevant, not the Scriptures. In a moment, we'll spend a moment in silent reflection. And I wonder if there are some of us who need to follow in the steps of Aaron. Remember, it it seems that Aaron's first sacrifice was intended to be an act of repentance from his idolatrous priesthood to the golden calf as he surrendered to the priesthood of, of Yahweh. Perhaps some of us need to similarly repent saying to the Lord, I, 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 have, I have hijacked my own life. I have made it about something that is completely about me. I have made up my own mission, and I'm not going to do that anymore. I repent of going my own way. I repent of, of living in as, as an idolater while naming the name of Christ, and I surrender to my calling as a New Testament priest. I confess and joyfully submit to a life of helping others go from doom in the presence of God to rejoicing in the presence of God through Christ. No matter where I find myself, whether that's as a doctor or a stay-at-home mother or a first responder or wherever, I see myself as a New Testament priest. Perhaps that's where some of us need to start this morning. I would encourage you as we enjoy a moment of 
silence before the Lord that we each consider before Him. What would the Lord have us to do with the things that we've seen this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious ministry of the priesthood that you've given to us. And we come to you now, Lord, asking that you would grant us to soberly assess our vocation in that priesthood, to soberly assess the extent to which we currently today in the recent past have seen ourselves in that role. Is it the case, Father, that that we have been saying to others who don't know you, who do know you, that Jesus is the only way to the Father, that all men exist to enjoy fellowship with you? Father, if it is the case that that, that we are no more in the habit of, of speaking of Jesus conversationally, Intentionally moving into people's lives for the purpose of carrying out our role as priests. I pray that you would move us to repent, that we would be grieved, but, but that we would claim the atonement of Christ, believe that we've been forgiven, and joyfully move toward that work, believing that it is a great work, and that we would join Jesus in saying, our food is to do the work of the one who sent us. We pray, Lord, that this church would be a church known for talking about Jesus outside these walls. We pray that you would do this in us. That you would grant us repentance and faith in these things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.